Good morning, church. Good morning. I say good morning, church. Good morning. Trust you well, and you're blessed, and you excited for your pickle fish yes. this afternoon. Yes. Yes. Hallelujah. Could I get a small table here, please, guys? Now I understand where the need for an armor bearer came from. <laughs> Just get a little table here, please. Ah, that chair looks like a prop here. <laughs> when I want someone to stand on the, on the chair and do high jumps. Anyway, can you turn with me to the book of Mark? And if you don't know, now you know, we are in the book of Mark, uh, our series of Mark uh, for the last couple of weeks. And we will conclude on Sunday morning, resurrection morning. Um, the wife and I are jetting out uh, Sunday after church. In a little while you'll see us, in a little while you won't see us. And then we will return back, hopefully suntanned. Sunday, relaxed, refreshed, and uh, it's our anniversary. Um, when's our anniversary? <laughs> on the 11th, eh? On the 11th, on the 11th of April. How long we married? Don't ask such trick questions early. <laughs> it is also pastor's his birthday yesterday. The man of God, man of faith and power. I don't want to Charlene spoil you. I hope we've got a cupcake for you. After the service, uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Last week we spoke on the courageous king. This morning we will speak on the conquering king. Mark chapter 15, when you're there, please give me an amen. amen. And we're going to take our cues from verse 16, well, from verse 16. Mark 15, verse 16. Besides all the shouting and screaming that goes on in church, one of the best sounds you can hear is the turning of pages. So what, what point is there having the shouts and no clout? Matthew, oh sorry, Mark chapter 15, reading from verse 16. The Bible reads as follows. Then the soldiers led Jesus away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple. And they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him and mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with the reed, spat on him, bowing their knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his clothes back on him and led him out to be crucified. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. You know, Rufus is a kind of 
name you give your dog these days. As he was coming out of the country and passing by, he was to bear the cross of Jesus. And they brought him to a place, they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which is translated the place of a skull. And then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. And now it was at the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of the accusation that was written above was the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on the other side of his left. So the scripture was fulfilled which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who said you destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said he saved others himself, he cannot save. Let, the king, let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who are crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani," which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge again full of sour wine, and put on the reed and offered the tweeb to drink again, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come down and take him. And Jesus cried out, cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him, so that he had cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. Amen. 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 God bless to us the reading of his word. Hallelujah. Can we pray? Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit that brings liberty and freedom and fullness of joy. You've not left us orphans but you have deposited inside of us the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out this morning, Abba Father. We cry out Daddy this morning because of the sacrifice which you paid for our sins. You died, Lord, and you set us free from the debt and penalty and price of sin. And now we can come boldly into your presence to worship. We can come boldly, not as sinners or slaves, but we can come boldly as sons and daughters of the Most High. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the life you lived, the lessons you taught. 
and we thank you for your ongoing mediation at the right hand of the Father, constantly making intercession on our behalf. And we thank you that you can, that, that we can have this hope, knowing that that which we commit to you, you will keep against that day when we will see you face to face and eyeball to eyeball. And in a moment, we'll become just like you, transformed into your image. And we'll put away this corruptible mortal bodies and we'll put on immortality. We'll put on that celestial body and you'll wipe away every tear and take away all the pain. And we look forward to that day. But for now, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So we thank you, Lord, as we come to your word, you'll anoint our ears. you anoint my lips. And you allow me to speak as an oracle of God this morning in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody says, Amen, amen and Amen. I hope you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark in this season. Uh, this is a fellowship and church that lo loves to encourage good old-fashioned Bible reading. Amen. amen. The best way to read your Bible is book by book try and persuade me otherwise you know back in the day I used to be a flip and point reader <coughs> you know I just open the Bible up anywhere close my eyes you know because it's the Word of God anywhere you point and read must be good so you know so there was this guy who just used to flip and point close his eyes and just open his Bible and point and read wherever his finger would land and he turned to open his Bible, flipped the pages and pointed his finger with his eyes closed and his finger came upon the verse which said Judas hung himself. He said, Lord, what are you trying to tell me? And he closed his Bible, he opened it again, eyes closed, pointed his finger at the first verse he could find and it said, go and do likewise. <laughs> He said, Lord, what are you saying? And he closed his Bible again, closed his eyes, opened his Bible, pointed his finger wherever he could land. And he came to the verse which says, what you do, go and do quickly. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to understand the word of God, you have to approach the word of God in a methodical way. Yes. You have to have a plan. You have to have a, an approach. When you come to the Word of God, uh, if you really want to seek out the meaning of, of the Scriptures and the meaning and, uh, of the Word of God, you have to read it from cover to cover. One of the dangers that we fall into so often is misinterpreting the Word of God. One of the important things of Understanding the Word of God is that you need to know that the Bible was not written to you. The Bible was written for you. Amen. Amen. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. In other words, there is an immediate original audience, which is not you. We are the contemporary audience. And so there is an original audience and then there is the contemporary audience. And so the job of the contemporary audience is to 
seek out what was the intended meaning of the original author to the immediate audience. And so our job is, when we approach the scriptures, to reconstruct and recreate the historical setting and the cultural setting. To get to understand what were the idiomatic phrases and, and, and language of the day. Because if we miss that, we fall into the trap of misinterpreting the word of God. If you misinterpret truth, you will incorrectly apply truth. And so many today have imposed their own bias and ideologies into the Word of God because they don't seek out the original meaning of the text. And so our job is to reconstruct the cultural historical setting and the context of Scripture. If we don't do this and we fail to do this, we'll fall into the trap of Jesus, You know, I once uh, heard of a story of a group of intercessors, and you know, intercessors can be crazy and radical, you know? They can go on praying for hours, and you know, they can just be, you know, uh, like intercessors can be. And they came across, across this passage which speaks and refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. And so they employ the process of Jesus. Because eisegesis simply means to take your own bias and, and, and ideologies and filters and read into the Word of God. And so they decided to take a plane, Pastor Clinton, <laughs> and they took a plane and they started binding and loosing the devil in the air. That's a classic example of eisegesis. Every time I hear somebody quote Jeremiah 29, 11, I hear eisegesis. So you go back and you read the context you will be shocked at what you find. Amen. Instead, the call is to adopt the process of exegesis. Eisegesis is when you read into the scripture. Exegesis is when you seek out the original intended meaning of the Bible and you read out of the Bible. Amen. It's a critical process. And you will not find any jewels of scripture on the surface. The Bible will demand brain work and heart work. Amen. Amen. And so last week, we looked at when the Gospel of Mark was written. The Gospel of Mark was written in the period of 54 AD, Anno Domini, in the year or reign of Christ. And during the reign of Neo-Claudius Augustus. We said last week that Nero, the emperor of Rome, was a debauched tyrant ruler who was infamous for his butchery and and slaughtering of the Christian church. He was famous for what they knew back then as, as the ro- for instituting the Roman candle. And the Roman candle would be... Uh, you know, the uh, uh, entire row of Christians would be burnt at the stake and it would light up the palace of, of Rome. And so he would torch and flame these, these, 
believers in Jesus Christ and he would feed them to ravenous dogs and he would throw them in dens of lions and he was uh, popular and, and, and famous for crucifying anyone who professed to be a Christian. He was known for crucifying Peter upside down. He was such a debauched emperor that Rome itself denounced him and named him a lunatic. We said last week that there are four Gospels. And there are four Gospels because there are four audiences. Matthew writes to the Jews. Mark writes to uh, those in Rome. Luke writes to the Greeks. And John takes the universal audience on. We said that there, there are four Gospels because a portrait is more complete from different angles. And so each gospel is a portrait of Jesus. It is not just simply a mod modern biography or historical account of the life of Jesus, but each gospel is a portrait of Jesus Christ. And when we come and approach the gospel of Mark, we discover and see that Jesus is portrayed by Mark as the servant savior. The key verse in the Gospel of Mark is found in chapter 10, verse 45, where the Bible says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he was the servant king, the servant savior, and his death was to be an atoning death for the sins of the world. The Gospel of Mark, like we said, is written by John Mark. John Mark grew up in a Christian home where his mother would hold meetings and home fellowship in her home. In Acts chapter 12, it's recorded that Peter and the disciples would fellowship in the home of John Mark's brother and John Mark's mother. And John Mark would grow up in this environment of church. And John Mark would go on to become a mighty instrument in the hands of God. He will become the spiritual son of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And in becoming a son of the Apostle Peter, he became a close travel companion of the Apostle Peter. And so he would write his gospel accounts from based on his relationship with Peter, who was an eyewitness of the life and ministry and death of Jesus Christ. So his relationship with Peter is the foundation for the gospel narrative. So Mark can be seen and his gospel can be seen as, as an interpretation of Peter's testimony. Since Peter was an eyewitness from the very beginning. And Mark wrote his gospel despite the persecution that the church faced. He did not write his gospel to encourage the church. He wrote his gospel as an apologetic for the cross and the good news of Jesus Christ because there were those who opposed him and said, why should we believe in a so-called miracle man who died like a commoner and died like a peasant on the cross. Why should we believe that he is the savior of the world? And so Mark gets to defending the gospel. First Peter 3 says that we should always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks us the reason for the hope that lies inside of us. We should always be ready when someone questions 
But brother, why are you always playing this gospel music? Mm. Brother, I hear you saying you save, save from what? Yeah. Brother, I see you in church every Sunday. Yeah. What's the reason for your smile this morning? Yeah. Mary Ann. Yeah. Every day you walk into the office, you've got the smile, but haven't you heard we're retrenching? What's the reason for your hope? Yeah. And when they ask you the reason for your hope, you tell them. Tell them how, how he delivered you from a life of drugs Amen. and alcohol abuse. Yeah. Tell them of how you used to party and be out every weekend. Yeah. But he turned your life around. Tell them how you were a wife beater, yeah. a husband beater. And tell them how God changed your life around. Tell them you were blind. But now I see I was lost. But now I am found. Tell them of how he lifted you up from the miry clay. And how he took you from the guttermost to the uttermost. Tell them. Tell them. For the reason you have this hope in Jesus Christ. Tell them that he's still in the miracle working business. When the doctor said that you would die, you wouldn't make it. Tell them. Tell them that he still saves. And don't you dare not tell them. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let that blood be on your hands. And so we journey through the final hours of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We found ourselves in chapter 14 and we saw that in the midst of those closing hours, we saw how the chief priests and scribes and Sanhedrins plotted and planned to assassinate Jesus. We saw that in the midst of, of the attempts of assassination and planning and conniving of how Jesus was being plotted against by Judas. Judas was planning to treacherously betray him. We also saw in chapter 14 of how Peter would dishonorably deny Jesus whom he followed for three years. And we saw how his disciples who followed him closely, cowardly scattered after his arrest. Yeah. And in the midst of this dark period of betrayal and denial and plotting and scheming against him, these were the culminating hours of his life on earth. We saw how he found a worshiper. A woman at Bethany, an unnamed woman, but John tells us this is Mary Magdalene. And she came and poured out this expensive, costly, spike knot oil in devotion and worship of him. And she poured this oil on his head, down through his neck, and anointed his feet. And this fragrant oil would last for two, three days. It would permeate the body of Jesus. And we saw that, that the disciples became indignant. And the rulers had become furious. And Judas stood up to say, why such a waste? This could have been sold to the sold and given to the poor and Jesus vehemently defends this worshipper and says what she has done she has done for my burial her worship was not wasted because there in the garden when he had agonized he would get a sense of her worship 
day in the courtyards and 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 prison cells of the Sanhedrin, he will get a scent of her worship. There on the cross of Calvary, he will get a scent of her worship. And who knows, those who gambled for his garments would go home to their wives and their wives would ask, what's that smell? And the angels of heaven would say, it's Mary's worship. I can safely say, with all the authority that is in the word of God, that any man or woman right here that is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. You're not ready for heaven if worship bores you. This is only a dress rehearsal. For the real worship to come. And so lastly, we, last week we, we found ourselves in the Garden of, e of Gethsemane where Jesus travailed for three long hours agonizing in prayer and over his decision to go to the cross. And he prayed for over three hours agonizing saying, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And we spoke about how this cup metaphorically spoke about the wrath of God, the justice of God, the anger of God, and, and the sin that would be imputed and transferred to him. And when he looked over the brim of this cup, he despised everything that was vile inside of that cup. And he had a moment of hesitation. And a moment to pause to consider that he might not come out on the, of the end of this tunnel. This was a burden too huge for any man to bear. Yeah. And it was not the physical torture that he feared. It was the disconnect from his father's fellowship and the wrath of his father that he would face. But in those moments, the Hebrew writer told us and gives us a good picture of what he experienced and said that it was in the days of his flesh that Jesus offered up vehement cries and tears unto the one who was able to save him. Yeah. And he was heard because of his godly fear. And so he cried and he wept and he agonized for, for three hours. This was not a pretty prayer meeting. Yeah. And he relied on the support of his closest friends but each time he came back from his prayer they would be sleeping yeah. it took a great load of courage for him to face those final hours but he endured those hours because of the joy that was set before him because the bible says that it pleased the father to wound him. And the Bible says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross in despising the shame. He went through that gruesome dark pit of, that of suffocating darkness because he had a joy set out before him. And what was that joy, you ask, preacher man? It's the joy of the prodigal returning. What is that joy, preacher man? It's the joy the father gets over one sinner who repents. Yeah. 
What is that joy? When the sons and daughters of wickedness and darkness are translated into the kingdom of his son. And those who are lost and in despair and who live a life of, of sin and iniquity repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the joy set before him. And no one has shown more courage to bear such a load of darkness and death than our Jesus. He showed up and he never gave up. And he became all that he was called to be. And this may be a word of encouragement to someone out there. I know the times are tough. And I know you're going through hell and high water. Regardless of how you feel and what you're going through. Just get up every morning. Dress up and show up. You don't need to get up. We walk by faith and not by sight. Our faith dictates our life. Not my feelings. Not my temperaments. You know, is it just me or are there just too many temperamental Christians out there? Come on, man. Be unshakable in your faith. There's no time to falter to the left or to the right. There's no, there's no hot or cold here. No lukewarm. No in-between. No demilitarized zone. Anchor your faith. The times are not going to get easier. Just when I thought the interest rate hit its ceiling, it was announced last week that it's going up again. And right now we're on stage six. Who knows? Jossie may be able to give us some intel there at the back. (laughs) We might be seeing stage eight or stage ten. They might even blot out the sun. Times are not going to get any easier, so muscle up. Muscle up. Show up. And don't be a crybaby. Amen. Amen. Clinton, when service is over, have the car running. Have the car running. Amen. Mark is a spirit-filled preacher. And he's also a literary genius and mastermind. There's no way you can read through the Gospel of Mark and not be overwhelmed by his style and technique of presenting the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark's Gospel is constructed in such a simple way. So simple that I overlooked it for years because I thought it's just a summary or a concise version of Matthew and Mark, you know. But when you get down to the simplicity of Mark's uh, literary masterpiece, you begin to find that in its simplicity, it's extremely profound. Mark's gospel is characterized by three things. Firstly, his gospel is compact. In other words, it is the shortest gospel. Matthew has a total of 1,071 verses. Luke has a total of 1,151 verses. 
John has a total of 879 verses, but Mark has a total of only 678 verses. It's compact, it's short, it's concise. Mark's gospel, secondly, is also characterized in that it's vivid. His gospel is impressionable, it's colorful, he portrays his, his narrative in a way that Matthew and Luke and John don't, don't portray it. In the temptation account of Jesus in the wilderness, Mark is the only one that tells us that when Jesus was in the wilderness, he was amongst the wild beasts. He tells us, like no other gospel author, that when Jesus healed Peter, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, he did not simply touch her and she was healed. No, he goes on to tell her that Jesus took her gently by the hand. He's being descriptive and he's giving these, these emotions that's dressed in these nuances and, and his writing is very descriptive and creative. He tells us about the young rich ruler in chapter 10 verse 17 that came to Jesus. He was kneeling and begging and imploring Jesus and Jesus looked upon him and Mark tells us that Jesus loved him. And Mark is the only gospel that tells us that when this young man was told to sell everything he had because Jesus was testing his heart, Mark was the only gospel that told us that this young man's countenance fell. In chapter 18, verse 23. The third characteristic of Mark's gospel is that Mark's gospel is structured. It excels in chronological order. Luke's gospel is very structured. And when Luke opens up his gospel, he tells us in verse 1 that he sets out to put in order a narrative of the things which have been fulfilled. So you know that Dr. Luke is going to be methodical and, and meticulous in the way he presents the story and good news of Jesus Christ. But then you get Mark, on the other hand, which parallels with Luke all through the chapters to chap chapter 6. It's just chapter 7 where there's no parallel. But when you examine the way Luke pre presents the gospel story, you see that Luke doesn't place the rejection of Jesus as at Nazareth and the betrayal narrative where Mark places it, but Mark instead places it in a chronological order. And you see that Luke, Dr. Luke, places it in a thematic way to present the account. And this tells you that Mark is being more structured and chronological in the sequence of events. So Mark is a literary genius and mastermind and from the beginning of his gospel he plunges us into the immediate ministry of Jesus Christ he gives us no genealogy he pays very little attention to the teachings and parables and discourses of Jesus between the Pharisees and scribes he gives very little attention to the conflict and confrontations but what he does is he bursts Jesus abruptly onto the scene and Jesus is seen taken taking the Galilean village by storm and in these short vignettes of, of, and short paragraphs he moves from event to event, from miracle to miracle. He's showing us the determination of the servant of Jehovah, of the servant of God in accomplishing the purposes 
of his father and so we see that the gospel of mark is fast-paced he uses the term immediately the phrase immediately 49 times so he he goes into this fast-paced narrative of of jesus performing miracle after miracle jesus is seeing tempted uh, by satan jesus is seen baptized by John and, and in his teaching ministry and healing the sick and casting out devils and then when we get into the passion narrative of Mark we see Mark treats his narrative very differently when Mark gets into the final hours of Jesus he begins to pay more attention to the details he tries to leave no stone unturned. The reader gets an almost hour by hour account of what is happening in the final moments of Jesus. He goes into detail about his close friend that betrayed him with a kiss. Tells us about how Christ was arrested how he's brought before Arnus and Caiaphas, the high priest of the day, and the Sanhedrin, and he, how he brought before Pilate, and how he goes before Herod, and, and how he's sent back to Pilate to be condemned. And so between chapters 14 and chapters 15, Jesus would face a six-part trial. Imagine him agonizing in the garden for three hours through to midnight. He was physically exhausted. Then at night, at that same night, he was arrested. And then he was brought through before Annas was a high priest. And then they gathered around these false witnesses to try and find something convicting on Jesus. But these false witnesses' stories don't line up because when you, when you start to tell a lot of lies it just the stories eventually don't line up yeah. Yeah. and so when 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 they can't find anything incriminating on Jesus before honest he sends him off to the other high priest Cephas now you've at this point you've got to ask yourself why are there two high priests yeah. because the law required strictly that there be one and when you open up the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3, Luke tells us from the word go that in the time when Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, John was born. And so the fact that there are two high priests tells us that this religious system is compromised. This religious system has expired. It's reached the sell by date. And there's a lot of religious systems that I can think of now that have been compromised. And if you do your look into church history, you will see a lot of compromise in the religious system. Yeah. I mean, at some stage, they would literally kill each other. That's the extent of how some religious systems have failed. And so when there's no incriminating evidence, 
presented before Arnas, he sends him over to Cephas. Cephas cannot get anything incriminating against Jesus, so they send him before the assembly of the Sanhedrin. And still they cannot find anything incriminating against him, but they are determined to have him crucified. And so they send him off to Pilate, who was a Roman governor, if you read John 18. And Pilate is convinced without a shadow of a doubt that this man is innocent. And so he sends him off to Herod. Luke tells us this in chapter 23. Herod cannot find anything incriminating. Sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate in a last attempt tries to get him free. But Pilate was a man that was given to the people. And so he presents the Jews with a choice between Barabbas and Jesus. And these chief priests walked up the crowd to choose Barabbas over Jesus. These Jewish leaders hated Jesus to such an extent that they were willing to break their own laws in which they did. No trial was to be held during the Passover. They had a trial anyway. Each member of the court was to vote individually to convict or acquit the suspect. But Jesus was convicted by acclamation. If the death penalty was given, a night must pass before the sentence is carried out. However, only a few hours passed before the sentence was carried out on Jesus. No trial was to be held at night, but this trial was held before dawn. The accused was given the right to counsel and legal representation, but Jesus had none. The accused was also not to be asked any self-incriminating questions but they asked him constantly are you the Christ these these laws which the Jews broke gives you an insight into how much they hated him when you get into chapter 14 and 15 you pick up on a motif that has been developing from the time that Jesus was born. From the time Jesus was born, the handwriting was on the wall. And there was a dark destiny that awaited him. From the time he was born, we told that Mary and Joseph had to flee to Egypt. As Herod had all the male babies in Bethlehem killed. Jesus escaped. In Mark chapter 2, he tells the disciples of John that the days will come when the bridegroom must be taken away. He knew that a dark hour awaited him and his followers. He was constantly accused and being confronted by the scribes and Pharisees. We see this in Mark chapter 2, chapter 3, 11 and 12 into chapter 14. We see him falsely convicted chapter 14 and 15 we see him betrayed by disciple and friend we see him abandoned by his disciples and everyone left him he was alone we see him condemned by the crowd 
we see him mocked by the Jewish guard and soldiers. And they blindfolded him and they struck him with their hands and they said, if you are the Messiah, prophesy who hit you. So they beat him on that evening and then he was brought before the Roman God where they also mocked him and brutalized him. And then he was brought before the crowds while he hung on the cross and even there he was mocked by the crowds. And not only did the crowds mock him, even the thieves on the cross had a nerve to, to mock him and slander him. So what the Jewish gods did was after three hours of agonizing prayer and, and fatigue, physical fatigue, Jesus is brought before the Jewish God and he's beaten and he's mocked. Then he's brought before the Roman God when Pilate finally releases him to be condemned. The Roman God then mock, worship him, and they twist the crown of thorns and place it on his head. After placing the crown of thorns in, on his head, they would spit on his face. And this was not a pretty spit. Yeah. This was not the kind of, of spit you get, you know, when you're eating on your donuts. And your mouth starts salivating. And your Krispy creams. No. They spat on his face. Then they put a scepter reed in his hand. And they mockingly worshipped him. And then they would take the reed from his hand and they would hit him over the head with the same scepter as if to say, what kind of king gets beaten with his own scepter? And each time they would beat him, the thorns would pierce deeper into his scalp. And by this time there'd be ripples of blood pouring down his head, drenching his garments. And they would tie him to a whipping post where they would flog him, plow his back with the Roman cat and nine tails, leaving him half fainting from the copious blood loss. I'm still trying to find the verse which says he was whipped 39 times. If you find it, I'll give you 5,000 rand. Because he has an example of eisegesis. In Deuteronomy, it was the Jewish form of punishment to whip you 39 times. When Paul speaks about his lashing in, the, in 2 Corinthians, he says he was whipped and scourged uh, 40 minus 1 times because the Jewish God would whip you in this way. But this is the Roman God. Yeah. They are not obliged to keep Jewish customs. Yeah. So we don't know how long they whipped him for. But it makes good preaching, eh? When you say 39 stripes, one for every disease. <laughs> yeah. And so they whipped him mercilessly, and he was half fainting from the blood loss. And then what they did was place a purple robe on his lacerated raw back. And then they would take it off again, mockingly worship him, and put back his own clothes. And if you and if you read the narrative account, you find out that they are now leading him down the Via Della Rosa to a place called Golgotha. And verse 20 of chapter 15 says that when they 
when they were done beating him at the post it says they led him verse 22 says they brought him prior to this he was walking but since the beating on the post he had to be carried away and they forced him in the beginning to, to carry this load this heavy beam and what we don't seem to realize is that this wooden beam weighed 136 kgs oh I see my brother Clint at the back who knows what it's like to lift those dead deadlifts and my brother Alvico at the back will tell you that 136 kgs is no lightweight they put this raw wooden beam splintered wooden beam on his back it's a raw lacerated back and they said carry it but they could see that there was no way they were getting to Golgotha for the execution so on their way they bumped into a man from North Africa whose name was Simon and you know you've got to appreciate Mark's attention to detail it's almost in an ironic sense that he's, he names this man because Simon had the other Simon had denied Christ yeah. here was another Simon who picks up the cross and the fact that that Mark pays attention to who it was and, and who he was the father of. He was the father of Rufus and, and Alexander. The fact that he, he pays attention to this detail is that he's trying to leave us a, a, a clue. And church history will tell you that Simon of Serene, who helped carry the cross of Jesus, turned out to becoming a missionary for Jesus. And he took the gospel to Egypt and there he died as a martyr. And did he know that that day when he'd encountered Jesus and carried his cross, his life would take a turn for the best. Though he was compelled to do it, it turned out to be his greatest reward. And so he carries his cross and he brings Jesus to the place of execution. And so right there on Calvary, they crucify him. The victim would be laid down on this crucifix. And if you understand how the crucifixion method of execution was was invented you'll know that Rome did not invent this this method of torture it was the Athenians and the and the Persians that developed this form of of torture and execution but what the Romans did was they took this form of torture and they improved on it and improved on it in such a way and it designed it in such a way that you die a slow excruciatingly painful death and so the victim's back that was torn would be laying down on the beam and the nails would be driven through his wrists and feet piercing the median nerves and tearing the median nerves in his wrists and feet the term excruciating or you know to, to excruciate comes from the term crucifixion and so the posture of the crucifixion made it 
very difficult and extremely difficult for the victim to breathe because the weight of his body was pulling down on his arms that were nailed and he would have to push up on his feet to grasp for oxygen and because of the lack of oxygen this would lead to severe muscle cramps and it would become harder and harder for the victim to breathe death on the crucifixion could come in various ways you could die from acute shock from the blood loss you could die by suffocation because you were too exhausted to breathe you could die of dehydration you could die of a heart attack that's induced by severe stress your heart could rupture from congestive heart failure and if the victim did not die quick enough, the Roman God would come and break his legs. And Jesus hung there, Mark tells us, from the third hour until the ninth hour. Six long, horrific hours on the cross. And so what the woman did and the crowd did was to try and alleviate the pain they would give him. Wine mixed with, with myrrh. In an attempt to numb the pain. But Jesus refused. And they tried a second time towards his final hour to give him more sour wine to try and alleviate the pain. But Jesus again refused because for him there were no shortcuts yes. in fulfilling the purposes of God. Amen. There were no off-ramps. And finally we told that Jesus begins to cry out and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At this point you realize the spiritual horror of the cross for him. It was not the physical torture that he feared most. It was the spiritual horror because at that point for the first time in his earthly life and existence, he knew what it was like to be alienated from God. To be alienated from the Father. So he cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last. And at that moment, like Grenville said earlier, Jesus became the scapegoat for, for humanity. The sins of the world were transferred and imputed to him. And the Father judged him as though the life he lived was the life we loved. God executed him because God had a plan of redemption. Now at this point you want to ask yourself the question how heinous must sin have been for God to allow his son to be treated this way? How much must God have hated sin to have put his son through this ordeal. There's two things that come to mind when I read through this, this narrative. Firstly, is how black and dark the human heart can be. The second thing that comes to mind is how determined the father was. How determined Jesus was to redeem us from this plague called sin. Why is sin such an affront to God? 
Why does God abhor and hate sin to such an extent that he would allow his son to go through the torture and the horror of the cross? Sin is a disease that has alienated us from God. G.K. Beale defines sin as our failure to conform to the law of God in act, in attitude, and in nature. In other words, our nature, the nature of sin, does not allow us to come near to God. In other words, we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. It's in our nature to do it. And that's why when you read through the Old Testament narratives, you'll find that man is constantly failing. Even with the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Because there was only one sacrifice that was going to appease the wrath and justice of God. And that was the sacrifice of his son. What is sin? Sin is the transgression of God's law. Sin is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed and the beauty of God not treasured. The commandments of God not obeyed and the justice of God not respected, the presence of God not prized, and lastly it is the person of God that is not loved. The consequences of sin are too numerous for me to mention this morning. But what sin has done is alienated us from God and brought enmity between God and man. But God in his redemptive plan sent his son and his son would be the only sacrifice to appease his wrath and the demands of divine justice and when the call had gone out and when the father cried out whom shall I send Revelations tells us that no one was worthy to open the seal. But then John saw in his vision a lamb. And he said, behold, the lamb was worthy to break the seal. And so Jesus stepped forward and he said, hear my Lord, send me. Send me for the ransom of these souls. Send me for the redemption of mankind. Send me, I will go. Nobody else is qualified for the salvation of mankind. And so this morning in closing, I want to ask you, what is your buy-in? What's your buy-in? What's your response to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? What's your level of commitment? Are you still coming to God on your terms? What's your buy-in? What's your response for the work of Jesus Christ, for the blood of Jesus Christ? The Bible says, how then shall we, how then shall we escape 
if we neglect so great as a salvation oh how great was the sacrifice you will never know we will never know collectively the weight that he had to bear on his shoulders the sin that was imputed to him so great was the sacrifice that in the garden of Gethsemane he paused and, and feared and had a moment of anxiety and said Lord let this cup pass me let it pass but for the joy that was set before it, he endured the cross what is your buy-in he loved his life for you will you love your life for him will you love your life for him is there an excuse for our backsliding is there an excuse for half-baked commitment to God there is none is there a reason for not praying is there a reason not to have a, re a relationship with the one who made you and formed you and sent his son for you he who knew no sin became sin so that he, we might become the righteousness of God. A great sacrifice was paid for your soul. And you still saying, hey, but brother, I just want to, I just want to stop my nonsense first. Yeah. I just want to quit smoking. I just, you know, I'm still struggling with this. You don't know his struggle. You think he went through what he went through as God. No. He went through what he went through as a man yes. a bonified fully developed man who got hungry and fatigued and who feared and he had to endure temptation as you would endure temptation you think there were no pretty ladies that came up to this carpenter physique man and said man look at that six-pack he endured our temptation but he was so determined to fulfill the purposes of how determined are you how determined are you when you say no brother this life is too good I'm making money I'm making too much money on this side how determined are you when you say ah Lord I know I haven't been to church for four weeks three six months ah can I just sleep in this this one Sunday how determined are you when someone passes your, your, your way and says, Brother, I'm, I'm so low and depressed. I don't know what to do. My life's falling apart. Do you have the solution? We are not a determined generation. I, I'm convinced of it. And since post-COVID, something's gotten worse. Show up own up to what he called you to become he called you to become a child of God a son of God he called you to anchor your faith be immovable don't care what you are struggling with is your struggle too big for God is the grace of God not sufficient anymore? Has the blood of Jesus lost his power? Maybe time someone will come up to me and say, but brother, you don't know what it's like to be addicted on, on crack and addicted on Turk. And, you know, I've been 20 years addicted 
I say, you don't know the power of the blood. Are you telling me that he cannot break the bonds of drug addiction when there are countless of people that have been set free? Are you telling me she's too pretty? Or he's too good looking? No temptation is strong enough to meet the power and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even if you gave away all your resources, you sold your multi-millionaire house and your Aston Martin and your and, and you took all the clothes off your back and you gave it to him as a sacrifice, it would still never be enough. Yeah. But we still come into service to God like we like He's happy when we tip him. Yes. He wants your time. He wants your talent. He wants your talent. He wants you. He was a conquering king and he said, in this world you will have struggle. In this world you will have trial. In this world you will have tribulations. But fear not, I have overcome the world. Be courageous. Do we have any bold believers and people that will finally, finally take a stand and say, I am here and here to stay. I'm not moving where you place me, God. I'll journey with you the full mile. I'm not a sprinter. I'm not no Hussein Bolt. No, no, no. I'm running the marathon with you. When I gave my heart to Jesus, Everyone I knew that was a Christian and, and serving the Lord and born again and, and walked around with that label saying I'm saved, they looked so boring and dull and they, they wore these short sleeves with ties and they looked like, you know, those witnesses you find on this thing. <laughs> and when I came to Christ, I said, I don't care if it's boring. Care if, it's, if it's boring if I'm going to sit in church and read my Bible because that's what I enjoy I enjoy getting to know him worship doesn't bore me reading the Bible shouldn't bore you praying to him shouldn't bore you can we stand this morning Clinton can you just go start the car idling please And I say this with all conviction in my heart, with all the love I have for you this morning, church. Nothing would please me more as a pastor if you came to me and said, Pastor, I finally get it. Yeah. I don't care if you, if you come to me and say, Pastor, yes, yes, my seed. I don't want your seed. say I got this promotion we'll, we'll rejoice with those who rejoice but have you got the message yeah. the message that he preached all his life is still being proclaimed today Amen. love me yeah. serve me I sacrificed for you I died for you you don't know the shame you don't know the horror of what it was like hanging on that cross brutalized naked for men and women to mock me and persecute me and revile me since the day of my birth 
And there was one man in the narrative that got the message. Ironically, it wasn't his own people, the Jews. Ironically, it was a centurion soldier, Roman soldier, someone who wasn't part of the commonwealth of Israel, a Gentile that the Jews despised and as a soldier who participated in the abuse and brutality of Jesus he stands opposite the cross after a dark shadow came over the earth and Mark tells us there was this earthquake it was no ordinary eclipse because it was passed over there was no eclipse planned and while this phenomenon takes place Mark tells us that the veil in the temple on the other side of Jerusalem is torn from top to bottom which no man can rent with his hands the way is open and this Roman soldier stands opposite of Jesus and sees him breathe his last breath and scream out with a cry from the bottom of his heart and he confesses from his his heart and lips and he says truly this man was the son of God is there anyone here this morning this is preacher the Lord spoke to me the Lord spoke to my heart this morning and said come if that's you come forward come we want to pray with you you want to commit your life to Christ you want to have a complete start over with him.